Advertising must be conducted in a way that promotes the quality use of a product, is socially responsible and does not mislead or deceive the consumer. And essentially that's all there is to it. It's important that both the health industry and the consumers get correct messaging and to maintain that trust that we have in healthcare and healthcare system. Hi, I'm Amy Gosling, Principal Consultant at EMAS, Medicine Advertising Service, and you're listening to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast. Welcome to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast, brought to you by the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. Focusing on pharmacy management and ownership, the PBCN podcast supports the improvement and growth of your business performance with insights and advice from a range of industry professionals. The PBCN Podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. As we work in the healthcare space, there are quite a few rules and regulations that apply to how we can promote and communicate services and products. For services, the rules are set down by APRA, the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency. But for products, particularly those deemed of a therapeutic nature, the Therapeutic Goods Administration has an advertising code. The Therapeutic Goods Advertising Code ensures that the marketing and advertising of therapeutic goods is conducted in a manner that promotes the quality use of the product, is socially responsible and does not mislead or deceive the consumer. The Code has a legislative act and in 2009, the penalties attached to the act were significantly increased. The penalties apply to the organisation that's publishing the advertising material, so it's particularly important that our community pharmacies are aware of the code and how they can comply, and of course, not incur any penalties. Today, we chat with Emmy Gosling, Principal Consultant from EMAS, about how advertising and marketing of therapeutic goods is regulated for health practitioners, and how community pharmacies can adapt their clever content for use on social media, all the while ensuring materials sit on the right side of all the rules. Here's Emmy. Hi, Emmy, and thanks for joining us today. As I mentioned in the intro, the nature of health advertising, it can be a little unusual. Firstly, for those not familiar with it, could you provide us with a little bit of an overview of advertising regulation? Before I delve into the big lists of pages and rules, I suppose I wanted to stop and talk about products and the services we're talking about products that have a direct impact on people's lives or the lives of one of their loved ones. So I got a new large screen HD monitor uh, and I need a new coffee machine. But these, this has actually been life-changing, this new monitor for me. Um, having quality medicines, though, when they're needed, that is actually truly life-changing for someone. An accurate blood glucose monitor or a vaccinations or an asthma medication, these sort of things will keep you out of hospital and keep you alive. So it's not surprising that promotion of medicines or services in an inappropriate or unethical way is prohibited and that the penalties and repercussions are pretty serious. So for an overview of the legislation, well, there's the Therapeutic Goods Act, which covers the laws around therapeutic goods from their manufacture to naming, the classifications and so on. The Act also outlines those offences that you mentioned relating to therapeutic goods and the penalties for that offence. The Act is read alongside the Therapeutic Goods Regulations, which provides further details, exemptions, exclusions, information on the various committees and their roles and so on. And with both of these sits the Therapeutic Goods Advertising Code, 
which includes specific information relating to advertising of therapeutic goods. Uh, at this point, it's probably worthwhile pointing out there is a definition of what advertising is. I haven't got the exact wording here with me, but in essence, it's any activity that's undertaken to promote the use or supply of one of those therapeutic goods. So if the effect of what's released, um, whatever materials are released, either by the manufacturer or the distributors, the retail pharmacies, and if that induces the supply or purchase of a or the use of a therapeutic good, essentially that falls into that definition of advertising. And the definition encompasses either directly promote or indirectly promote. Uh, we know what direct promotion is. It's an obviously an advertisement, so a piece in a catalogue, a TV commercial, those types of things. Indirect promotion, though, could be, say, providing a sample, a brand, brand reminder, uh, sponsorships, where the intention is to promote the product and it's considered advertising. And this is different from information, but we're talking about regulations here. Uh, you mentioned APRA, the um, Health Practitioner Regulatory Authority, which oversees um, how service providers promote their services to the public. There's also the consumer laws to be mindful of, copyright laws. And since we're talking about social media today, the platforms themselves, I thought, they've got rules about what content is acceptable. For example, you'll find Facebook has an advertising policy that states that ads mustn't contain content that asserts or implies personal attributes. And that includes direct or indirect implications about a person's medical condition. So a Facebook ad that says new diabetes service available at our pharmacy, that's quite okay. But if you have put a Facebook ad that says, do you have diabetes? That's unacceptable to Facebook. So they, you wouldn't be able to post that. Um, that's a policy, not a regulation, but it does go to show how important it is to be across all of these rules. I mean, imagine spending all that time and money developing content and you get to posting it on Facebook and that's rejected. Back to the drawing board. So why are there so many rules in healthcare advertising? Why are they necessary and why are they so important both to the industry and consumers? Because I'm wondering, you spoke about how some of the medicines on offer can be truly life-changing, not only for the patients, but maybe their family as well. Is it in part because the conditions and the benefits of the treatment can be quite emotional and maybe people are quite susceptible to advertising and influence? Absolutely. My life-changing computer monitor, my HD monitor, <laughs> as opposed to a life-changing blood pressure monitor. And these products can really save lives or they're intended to help the person or a loved one maintain or improve their health. So not necessarily, you know, supplements, those types of things, maintaining or improving the life. And the, the TGA puts extra advertising rules in place um, to provide a higher ethical standard on these materials. Yeah, they're important. And as you mentioned, in my background in retail pharmacy, I spent years having people come to me asking about a product they'd seen on TV. Does it really work? They'd relay back to me what they saw and expect a miracle cure, something, you know, the night after a current affairs show. It's amazing what people hear or take in, despite all getting the same information. Uh, there's products out there that can help with weight loss, I know. 
but my point is that um, people hear different things from an advertisement. Um, a parent will come in with an ad from a magazine asking, does this really work? Can I use it on my baby? Or they'll hear something from a friend, um, oh, rub tiger balm on your sore throat. It'll be a perfect for you. So when you're unwell, as you said, uh, or looking after someone who, who is unwell, you're in a vulnerable situation. And if you see an ad about something that looks like it might help you or them get better, well, you're likely to jump on it. Of course you want the best or the fastest or the strongest or the gentlest. Whatever it is, that advertising message that you see will be particularly powerful when you're in that situation. I know you mentioned earlier that advertising must be conducted in a way that promotes the quality use of a product, is socially responsible and does not mislead or deceive the consumer. And essentially that's all there is to it. It's important that both the health industry and the consumers get correct messaging and to maintain that trust that we have in healthcare and healthcare system. Well, on that point, you touched on the sharing of information as opposed to pure advertising. Can you explain the difference between the two? And it'd be great if you could provide some context with an example or two, even if it does need to be hypothetical. Well, we could use the example of the parents with the magazine ad asking, does this work? As a pharmacist, I'd provide them with information based on my professional judgment for their individual needs. Uh, if I was still working in retail pharmacy and maybe had a few parents in over the week or knew that there was a bit of confusion going on about that condition, I might write up a blog post and include some general information about that condition, compare the treatment options available, give them some advice on when to seek further treatment. That's truly information. It's balanced. It's not promotional. And I'd be explaining a variety of ways to handle that condition. Some might be lifestyle changes, more fluids, rest, that sort of thing. And not necessarily only suggesting products that are available for sale. An advertorial, that's probably another mix of information and advertising. Uh, but you'd see these types of things marked clearly as an advertorial. Kind of like when an influencer posts on social media and they have, or at least should have, a hashtag ad or something to make it clear that it's advertising. That's a consumer law requirement, by the way. Um, and there has actually been a recent case in Australia upheld where that disclosure wasn't made clear and the influencer advertiser was pulled up on that. It was great to hear about the policy Facebook have on advertising on this front. And I love those examples about blogs, advertorials, and influencer marketing and those things that we need to keep in mind. Now, Emmy, there's about 16.5 million Australian Facebook users, 9 million Instagram users, and about 16 million YouTube unique visitors per month. This is just in Australia. So clearly the broad target audience that we're trying to reach is there. They're on social media, even by sheer volume, they're on social media. They're spending time on it. They're on it a lot. So when it comes to social media, is it actually worth the effort and time in terms of advertising therapeutic goods? Is it worth the effort? I'd say so. Those numbers are incredible. And it makes sense if you're looking to build on the number of possible customers you reach or retain or grow your online offer, that's a sensible proposition to approach social media as a platform. But when it comes down to the advertiser or the pharmacy, 
they need to think back on what their business goals are and what they genuinely intend to get out of using social media. Probably point out now that as pharmacists and pharmacies, we're driven by wanting to be there for our community to make a difference to them and a difference to people's physical and mental health. And this isn't just achieved by providing medicines. We're the business that's open when people need you. We've got someone, like a real person, that can greet those customers. And we know our stuff. We can talk to people in a way that they'll really understand. I mean, how many times do you hear, the doctor told me all about it, but could you just tell me again? I'm not sure what it's for or how it's going to help or those types of things. We get it. Um, and as a local business, we're up to date with what's happening locally at the school, the library, the football or netball club. And it's this business persona that can be conveyed on social media. In and amongst this social sharing, there is that space to advertise the therapeutic goods that you offer. Um, mouth guards or strapping tape at the start of the winter sports season and put that up on your social pages. There's something yuck going on at school, the latest head lice outbreak. Put that the night you get the note coming home from school yourself. And I'm sure you'll have a few treatment options and some advice you can share. I don't know. You asked whether it's worth the effort for advertising therapeutic goods. And I know there are ways to measure the value of that. But in my mind, the value goes beyond advertising products. It's advertising your pharmacy and it's worth to that audience. All the things that you offer, the connection, the personal service, meeting the community needs, being there with what they need, whenever and whatever that may be. And that's going to be different for every business. And I think importantly, the expertise and the trust and the standing that pharmacists have in the community, right? Yeah, for sure. I know my businesses, I had a couple of pharmacy businesses. One was a late night seven day trader and everyone wanted to have exactly what they wanted and have it quickly when you were open. The other smaller village pharmacies that we had, well, what the demand there was more like pull up a chair and have a chat after they'd filled their fistful of scripts. And there's not going to be a one size fits all when it comes to social media. If it's going to be worth it, there's many layers to the value. Emmy, great assessment there and so far and some good news on the worth of social media. Just to follow on from that a bit to try and tease a little bit more out, can you tell us about which types of social media platforms work well in the pharmacy industry and, and maybe why? And again, it'd be great if you could provide some more examples if you have them of when it does work well that you can share with us. I work closely with marketers and I've got a good grasp of what works well, but I'm not a marketing person. I'm the rules expert. But what works well would probably, as we touched on before, depend on a couple of things, what you want to get from using it and also what platforms you're comfortable using. If you are going to choose a social media channel, think about how it works, the audiences that they attract, and also what the audience will expect from what you're putting up there remembering that using social media is different from managing social media and it's not necessarily something you delegate to the youngsters in the team. As for what doesn't work on social, probably perfect posts that are curated. Um, social is honesty um, and that adds to the truth, um, you know, a raw image adds to the truth of the content you're delivering putting the same old stuff out there all the time 
can get really boring. So mixing it up with videos and graphics and photos and slip in your promotional content at that point too. Um, and a poorly tended or understaffed page, that's a no-no as well. It's free, you know, putting a social uh, Facebook page up, for example, is a free thing, but you still do need to commit to monitoring and updating that page. And if social media isn't for you and you're one of the people that believe we need in-store likes and not electronic likes and Facebook's all full of clickbait, or, and some, some businesses still think that social media is unprofessional. That's fine. If, and if that's you, focus on the things that matter now. Um, stick with first things first. Get your website looking schmick or at least get a website. Um, sort out your store layout, your product ranging, your staff, fine-tune your business and marketing plans. But don't say never to social media because, remember, people are social um, it might be in a different way from you, but they are. Social media can probably increase the visibility of your business's personal brand and help cultivate that community network and grow those relationships. Um, and with social, you've got that chance to engage with people in a real way and communicate and demonstrate your area of expertise. Um, back to the question, sorry, um, advertising product. Again, that can be measured, but there's more benefits than this number. And this benefit won't necessarily show up in those first couple of months of spreadsheets. Making comparative claims about the features and benefits of products and services is a popular way to advertise in any industry and especially in a crowded market. Emmy, as such, what is the preferred way to make comparative claims to ensure that we avoid breaking the rules on therapeutic goods? Earlier, I talked about comparing products in the information I was giving to the family. That was non-promotional. But if we are going to use comparisons as the powerful tool it is when it comes to advertising, you're right, it can be challenging. You can make comparisons, it's fine, but it does need to meet those original advertising requirements back to being balanced and accurate and not misleading. So if there's a possibility that the reader or the audience doesn't have a full grasp or understanding of all the facts or the subtleties in that ad, that's when the materials can be deemed misleading. Uh, an example perhaps would be $5 cheaper than the market leading brand. That'd be okay, um, given it's a market leader most people would be familiar with what the market leading brand is. But if, for example, a product was uh, better or faster absorbed, it needs to be clear to them what the comparison is being made with. Better absorbed than what or faster absorbed than what? And does fast absorption even matter for that type of a medicine? And if this isn't clear, then it's simply misleading. Natural is another um, commonly used term in advertising and sometimes even the use of the word natural can be an comp um, implied comparison. The TGA use this as an example in their own guidance documents. They question whether something being advertised as a natural anti-inflammatory product is an implied comparison with an unnatural anti-inflammatory product. We'd be comparing something like curcumin to cortisone. Um, and if the rest of the material around that message isn't balanced, well, then this could be deemed a misleading comparison. 
as I said, it's kind of tricky. Well, speaking of tricky, following along that same line of questioning or, or thought, some people would think that there's maybe some gray areas about what is counted as therapeutic goods, especially maybe on the natural front, as you said, and maybe where the various products and services even fall under therapeutic goods if they are sold in a therapeutic retail setting. Which products actually do need to comply with the TGA? Are there some that people may think that they need to comply really don't maybe? What needs to comply are therapeutic goods and therapeutic goods are actually defined in the legislation and they need to meet the rules of the advertising code. Prescription medicines, yep. Clearly, therapeutic goods and the rules say they can't be advertised to the public. Non-prescription OTCs or complementary medicines, if you can see an OSTAR number, an OSTL number on the label, these need to meet the code rules. But it does get harder for medical devices that are included on the register, but they don't have these identifying marks. And that's when you think back to what is this product being used for? Does it have a therapeutic purpose? Is it used to prevent or diagnose or alleviate a disease or an injury? Is it a replacement part for an anatomy? Some products that sit on body surfaces um, to have their effect are actually classed as medical devices. Um, Lubricating eye drops and saline nasal sprays, these are classed as medical devices and these need to meet the rules of the advertising code Um, and they're regulated as such. I suppose the grey areas are, as you said, around foods and cosmetics and some of the consumer goods, consumer goods like uh, crystal or copper bracelets, um, or anti-snore rings, those types of things. Uh, the example for foods, perhaps something, the sports supplements and protein powders, they contain nutrients to support healthy muscle growth. They're foods. But they can't make a claim to boost muscle development. That would be a medicine, a steroid, for example. Cosmetic products, an example, maybe. They can claim to reduce the appearance of wrinkles, but it's only anti-wrinkle injections that can stop the formation of wrinkles. Health services, again, that's different. Services that don't mention a specific therapeutic goods, they can be advertised, no problem. We just need to make sure that the advertising focuses on the service that the business is providing. Uh, for example, a vaccination service rather than the brand of vaccine that you're administering. The grey areas, yeah, they're tricky. Uh, my advice would be be mindful of the rules, know where to get advice and you should be okay. Uh, looping back to those um, sports supplements, there have been some regulatory changes in sporting supplements recently in that category. So if it's a focus area for your business, jump onto the TGA website and get up to date so you can be sure you're not accidentally advertising some illegal products there. You just mentioned vaccines. It's hard to do a podcast these days without mentioning COVID. I understand there are also now some very specific rules about how pharmacies promote the COVID vaccination to their patients in their community. Can you tell us about these? What are pharmacies allowed to promote when it comes to COVID vaccinations? Because as it becomes available to wider sections of the community and people start seeking out important information, it's going to be critical for pharmacies. 
And getting it right is pretty hard at the moment, Dan. Everything's changing. Has anyone got anything right yet? <laughs> I'm presenting up at APP in a month or so about this topic and I'm having to change my material every couple of weeks at the moment. Now, I know there's been a bit in the press about this lately and the doctors have been pretty vocal wondering why they can't make talk about different brands of vaccines and can't share, for example, on their social pages, a statement about the harms for their patients of not receiving the COVID vaccine that they're administering in their practice or comparing the benefits or shortcomings of one vaccine over another. In truth, though, it's not new. If we loop back to the definition of advertising, we'll see that this kind of commentary, for example, stressing the harms of not getting one of the COVID vaccines, will indirectly promote or encourage the supply of that vaccine. Vaccines are prescription-only medicines. Well, they're regulated that way. You don't get it written on the script at the moment. And prescription-only medicines can't be advertised to the public. Nothing has changed. To help both pharmacies and doctors, there is guidance available from the TGA and from the Guild, I believe. And to pharmacy, my advice would be treat it in the same way we've been doing the services all over the last few years, several years. Focus on the service, not the product, and you should be fine. Um, if you're looking for social content, the health department materials have been released and are available to be used. Check out their guidance from the TGA. Um, and if in doubt, check first. Ask the Guild, the TGA, or find a consultant if you want tailored advice for your particular situation. I'm going to break up the next point into two parts. One, the potential penalties and then what to do if we find ourselves maybe in some rough waters. Let's start with the penalties. Let's say someone unwittingly breaks the rules or finds themselves facing complaints about non-compliant advertising. Give us some context. What could be some of the potential penalties? Yeah, well, this has been in the press lately too, Dan. It's Maybe it's just me that sees the all the alerts and notifications. No, the headlines speak about thousands of dollars in penalties for illegal, um, advertising illegal medicines on a website, for selling or importing illegal face masks, or for advertising that's included unsupported claims. It happens. Um, and in addressing these complaints, the TGA say that they're trying to help create an even playing field in medicine advertising. They're supporting the self-regulation of health advertising. Pointing out that the TGA have what they describe as a complaints framework. They have a cascading path that they follow where any action is escalated depending on the seriousness of the non-compliance breach that's observed. I will point out here, it's important to remember that any action that is taken out is brought against the advertiser. And going back, if you remember when I tried to loosely define advertise, it encompasses whoever's involved in promoting the use or supply of the good, the manufacturer, the retailer, the publisher, all of these people could be contacted about that non-compliance breach. Since we're talking about social media, we could probably talk about here maybe about an online complaint by a customer or a competitor. Say a customer posted a complaint on one of your social pages and set off a Twitter storm. So if you've had the right advice, 
you'll have a clear and well-communicated moderation, social media moderation policy in force. Uh, and if you think you can manage that complaint online, you can choose to respond to those comments or remove them. But tips, deal with it quickly and professionally. You want to know about the potential penalties? Well, what has a big impact on one business might not seem so major to another, but I guess every business is going to agree that damage to reputation is right up there. You think about the financial penalties, uh, having resources diverted to handle the complaint and any loss of goodwill. The impact of any of these will differ for each of the businesses. Um, and a quote I've stolen is, if you think compliance is expensive, then you should try non-compliance. It's um, from Paul McNulty, a former uh, US Deputy Attorney General. And I think a lot of us in compliance agree with that sort of message. I do like some of those comments around, it's not just financial penalties, there's the knock-on effect of reputational damage that can occur. I think that's an important point for people to keep in mind. So Let's follow down this same path. Somebody unwittingly breaks the rules or finds themselves facing complaints about non-compliant advertising. What should they do if they find themselves in this situation? The advice you gave about social media complaints and having good moderation and acting quickly is important advice, but are they looking to get a lawyer or is the process that the TGA has quite supportive of helping people work through a complaint? Yeah, it is. Don't panic. And as I said, that cascading path of the complaints framework starts with an assessment of the risk to the public. Action typically against non-compliance starts with a letter reminding you of your legal obligations when you're advertising therapeutic goods. Yes, occasionally I'll get emails starting with help um, <laughs> and accompanied with one of those obligation letters. Um, in a letter like that, there's an outline of the complaint that's been lodged, defined uh, what section of the codes need to be considered and what action the advertiser, the publisher, the sponsor, the retailer, what action needs to be taken to address that non-compliance. In the letter, the TGA will give um, advice that they can provide some top-level assistance with addressing the complaint. But if you are needing further help or a broader assessment of all your advertising materials, they do suggest seeking independent legal advice from a suitable regulatory consultant. Um, as we said, the TGA compliance framework and the complaints system has been developed to support advertising self-regulation. It isn't like a ton of bricks is going to come falling down on you if your materials have got the wrong mandatory statements, for example. But advertisers who do flaunt those rules or ignore their obligations, there is scope for heavy financial penalties to be imposed and even imprisonment. And nobody wants that. We're finally getting free and our freedom's back. Bring on those lunches and reconnecting at conferences and face-to-face. So it's fair to say that the whole approach of the TGA and the industry as a whole is more about helping people and trying to ensure that they comply and keep the community safe rather than just actively looking to punish people who are trying to overstep the line. That's definitely the objective. There is a bit of fear and distress and confusion within the space, but that's the regulators, that's their um, approach that they've taken. So we should 
be supportive of that and endeavour to meet our obligations. Excellent. That's been some amazing insight. Thanks for that, Emmy. No doubt this has piqued the listeners' interests and they'll want to get this area right clearly. As such, you mentioned you're going to APP and you're going to be speaking there. People can catch up with you there, but also where can people go to get help and guidance on advertising rules for community pharmacies? Well, as I mentioned, the TGA, they they enforce the rules, so they'd naturally be the best place to go for a start. They've got extensive library of guidance documents and um, any past presentations that they've conducted, you can access their webinar recordings. Uh, there's also an online portal where you can submit an advertising inquiry. You can do that um, with limited detail or as much detail as you want to put in there. But I guess the problem with the engaging with the TGA is that like when I worked there, uh, the TGA staff can give advice, but ultimately the course of action is going to be a business decision. So you're not able to present a scenario to them and say, how do I fix this or how can I make it right? Essentially, they're able to, um, only response that they can give is a yes or no type of response. And that can be quite challenging for newcomers. So for advice, I suppose you depend on where you're at, how confident you are, uh, what support you've got, for example, from your banner group or the guild, um, or maybe consider seeking out independent advice, which is actually often really helpful. It's that further layer of support, kind of an over and above arm's length assessment of them advertising without the other influences. Now, advertising in healthcare is hard, but if you know there are rules, you know where to look for the right advice for your situation. And if you're looking to move more online and social and use these platforms to promote the business, it can be very rewarding on many levels. And Emmy, you're going to be speaking around this topic at APP soon, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. I'm going to be collaborating with the TGA, the Pharmacy Guild and the Pharmacy Board on a Sunday morning session. We're focusing on promotions and pitfalls of COVAX. Um, although you won't know what I look like given this is a podcast, <laughs> you can try and find me at um, APP and say hi. Um, I'd really look forward to meeting some of the listeners. And uh, obviously, there, I've got my contact details if you do ever need to get in touch with me. I've got a website, www.e-mas.com.au or emmy at e-mas.com.au, Medicine Advertising Service. Uh, yeah, and share this podcast link with your colleagues and associates and get the word out that social media isn't so scary. Emmy Gosling, Principal Consultant at Medicine Advertising Service. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights and expertise and advice around the advertising of therapeutic goods by pharmacies. Awesome. Thanks again to Emmy Gosling for providing us with some clarity around the advertising rules and regulations for community pharmacies. There's a lot to take in, but you can find further information on the Guild website at guild.org.au. Simply visit and type in advertising into the search bar. As Emmy mentioned, she will be speaking at APP this year on the Sunday morning in the business building stream on a panel discussing the promotion and pitfalls of COVAX. So if you're at APP this year, be sure to get along to that session. Or, of course, you can connect with Emmy by visiting her website, e-mas.com.au. 
I've been your host, Daniel Oyston, and you've been listening to episode 72 of the PBCN Podcast. The PBCN Podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For more resources, to access support or advice, or to view this episode's show notes, visit guild.org.au.